You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 420. 420. In the state of Colorado, 420 is uh, a joke, actually. But this episode will not be a joke. (laughs) This episode will be serious and substantive. And, uh, you know, it's a funny thing. Since this is episode 420, I feel the need to make clear. I have never done illegal drugs at all. I've never had illegal drugs offered to me. I have never done them. I have no interest in doing them. I know too many who have gotten addicted to illegal drugs and they have been wrecked by them. And what is it that causes us to discourage people from doing illegal drugs or abusing some kind of a substance like Oh, even alcohol for that matter, or for that matter, even prescription drugs. Why do we discourage people from abusing mind-altering substances? Well, because our minds are very important. Our ability to think clearly is very important. And the trouble with drugs and alcohol is that they alter our ability. They impede our ability to think clearly and therefore to make good judgments and therefore to make good decisions. And yes, abusing substances can cause direct negative physical health effects. Yes, you can die from an overdose of even, again, legal prescription medication or taking things in combination with one another. It can literally kill you just in and of itself, just chemically overwhelming your body's God-given systems and processes, but also, too, your ability to make good judgments and therefore good decisions and therefore to act rightly being impeded is a very, very serious area of stewardship. It is arguably the most important area of stewardship, what you do. I think very often as Christians, we think of what we have as being a matter of stewardship. If I have a vehicle, if I have a house, if I have nice clothing, if I have fill in the blank, this computer, this desk, I should be a good steward of these things. But however much or little you have in terms of materials resources, assets, money, property. The most valuable thing you have is your own soul. This is why Jesus asks the question, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Your soul is the most important thing which God has given you possession of. And this is also why self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. 
This is also why the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, as we talked about yesterday in our episode about whether it's appropriate to celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This is why Paul reminds Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Some translations say boldness or of a sound mind. And I like that translation of a sound mind. We're told also not to be drunk with wine, but to be drunk with the spirit, as in be intoxicated by God's Holy Spirit residing in you if you are, in fact, in Christ. Be drunk on that. Have that be your high. But it being 420, I have no inclination to do drugs. And I would warn anyone out there, if you struggle with that temptation, if you have imbibed in the past and you've been a slave to some substance, consider the question that Jesus poses. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And very often when men are falling on hard times and they lose things which are important to them, and that can be their job, that can be a relationship with someone they loved and cared about who was very important to them, that can be the loss of a loved one who has passed away, that could be an opportunity that they were very much looking forward to taking advantage of. It really doesn't matter what it is. Very often, men will abuse substances to cover up the fact that they've lost this thing which was so important to them. But again, even if it was the whole world, even if you had the whole world, it would not be more valuable than what God has given you in your soul, giving you a soul. You being created in his image is the most important thing. And so long as you have that, by God's grace, you have a great deal to steward. And your question should be what he's given it to you for and how should you be investing your time. But moving on from that, I, this week, finished G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, which I am told by my friend and compatriot at the Reformed Conservative and in Gladii Veritas is Chesterton's magnum opus. Now, to be very clear, I, however brilliant Chesterton is, reserve the right to disagree with him. He may have been brilliant, In fact, I would agree. He was brilliant, but also fallible, also a finite man. And however brilliant he was, he was wrong about some things. For one thing, I understand that he was a Roman Catholic and a staunch one at that. And I cannot affirm that. I cannot agree with his Roman Catholicism. But insofar as he had some valid, important, useful things to say, His Roman Catholicism does not prevent me from reading him or recommending his work. Instead, I would say, read his work, but as with everything except for the scriptures, sola scriptura does not mean you read only the Bible, but it means that the Bible is our only infallible source for Christian life and doctrine. The Bible is our only infallible authority and final authority on Christian life and doctrine. 
our Christian doctrine and practice. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy are both are, are, are both very important. They're, they're both critically important. And if you go to Chesterton or Lewis or anyone else outside of the scriptures, however brilliant they are, you need to be a good steward of your soul and not be taken captive by vain human philosophy, however brilliant it is, however brilliant the mind is communicating it. There's always going to be that temptation. We need to be good stewards and not blindly following even a man as brilliant as Chesterton. But I don't think our choices are binary in the way that some seem to. Either A, we read such men and affirm everything that they say, everything they believe, everything they did, and agree with them. Or we avoid them entirely. We shun them. We tell others to avoid them entirely. What is it that the Apostle Paul is doing when he quotes in passing with familiarity Greek poets and philosophers. What is it that he's doing? Is he affirming those Greek poets and philosophers in everything that they said, everything they alleged, everything they claimed? No. He's having a conversation culturally and he's conversant. He's listened. And James tells us in the New Testament, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. The anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. We should not have an allergic reaction to people saying things that are not true. Instead, we should go to God's word and be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But as for The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton, I, as is my tendency and my habit, will read for you the book summary and then the author's summary from goodreads.com. Goodreads.com is a great little website for keeping track of books that you would like to read, are reading, have read. You can read other people's reviews. You can post book reviews yourself. I like to post book reviews to goodreads.com. If you haven't yet, I would suggest you join. You can sync up your Goodreads account with your Amazon account and have books that you've bought on Amazon imported to Goodreads to make it easier to remember maybe which books you had planned on reading or have read and what you thought of them and go back through and maybe offer recommendations to friends of yours. You can have friends on there. It's a social media site for bibliophiles, really, and authors. I'm on there. You can follow me and see my book reviews. I've got, I think, about four dozen at this point. But goodreads.com has the book summary for The Everlasting Man as such. And I quote, What, if anything, is it that makes the human uniquely human? This, in part, is the question that G.K. Chesterton starts with in this classic exploration of human history. Responding to the evolutionary materialism of his contemporary and antagonist, H.G. Wells, Chesterton in this work affirms human uniqueness and the unique message of the Christian faith. Writing in a time when social Darwinism was rampant, Chesterton instead argued that the idea that society has been steadily progressing from a state of primitivism and barbarity towards civilization is simply and flatly inaccurate. 
Quote, barbarism and civilization were not successive stages in the progress of the world, end quote, he affirms, with arguments drawn from the histories of both Egypt and Babylon. As always, with Chesterton, there is in this analysis something, as he said of Blake, quote, very plain and emphatic, end quote. He sees in Christianity a rare blending of philosophy and mythology, or reason and story, which satisfies both the mind and the heart. On both levels, it rings true, as he puts it, quote, in answer to the historical query of why it was accepted and is accepted, I answer for millions of others in my reply, because it fits the lock, because it is lifelike, end quote. Here, as so often in Chesterton, we sense a lived, awakened faith. All that he writes derives from a keen intellect guided by the heart's own knowledge. As for Chesterton himself, Gilbert Keith is what GK stands for. Gilbert Keith Chesterton was an English writer, philosopher, lay theologian, and literary and art critic. He was educated at St. Paul's and went to art school at University College London. In 1900, he was asked to contribute a few magazine articles on art criticism and went on to become one of the most prolific writers of all time. He wrote a hundred books, contributions to 200 more, hundreds of poems, including the epic Ballad of the White Horse, five plays, five novels, and some 200 short stories, including a popular series featuring the priest detective Father Brown. In spite of his literary accomplishments, he considered himself primarily a journalist. He wrote over 4,000 newspaper essays, including 30 years worth of weekly columns for the Illustrated London News and 13 years of weekly columns for the Daily News. He also edited his own newspaper, GK's Weekly. Chesterton was equally at ease with literary and social criticism history, politics, economics, philosophy, and theology. So a brilliant man all around and well-rounded, I would say. Some interesting quotes, some fun quotes I'll share with you. Quote number one, most popular on Goodreads, which is kind of fun that Goodreads has this feature. You can scroll through quotes from most popular to least popular measured by how many likes they have, of course. What else? A dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So good. A dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Now, this is not to say that a living thing cannot go with the stream as well, but if you only ever go with the flow, are you dead, man? The next most popular quote, only half as popular as that first one. There are two ways of getting home, and one of them is to stay there. <laughs> very witty, very witty, very fun. He is smart, and he is also entertaining. I really enjoyed reading The Everlasting Man for comments like that, which are deceptively simple and yet have important ramifications where he plants them and how and how he expresses them. The next quote 
again, less than half as popular as the one I just read. Pessimism is not in being tired of evil, but in being tired of good. Despair does not lie in being weary of suffering, but in being weary of joy. It is when, for some reason or other, the good things in a society no longer work, that the society begins to decline. When its food does not feed, when its cures do not cure, when its blessings refuse to bless. We might almost say that in a society without such good things, we should hardly have any test by which to register a decline. That is why some of the static commercial oligarchies like Carthage have rather an air in history of standing and staring like mummies, so dried up and swathed and embalmed that no man knows when they are new or old. One more quote for you. This one, about half again, as popular as the last. Maybe two-thirds. Christendom has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. (laughs) Again, brilliant. Brilliant. What we have here is an example of a mind which knows how to communicate which knows how to express itself and also knows how to listen and to pay attention. And someone like Chesterton doesn't know how to say these things without knowing the things themselves. You have to know your audience in order to communicate. You have to know your own mind to communicate. And you have to know the thing that you're talking about. That's a classic principle and requisite of writing or any kind of communication. You have to know your subject, and you have to know your audience, and yes, even you have to know yourself, and you have to be honest. The quickest way to lose your audience is not being honest, not being above board, not being genuine. Also, too, lacking in humility, but there's a kind of humility in Chesterton really not talking about himself. In those quotes I just shared with you, Where do you see Chesterton going on about himself? No, he's talking about what is true and what is good and what is beautiful and what is right, what is wise. Let's talk about going with the flow. Let's talk about getting home and maybe just stay home. Can't get lost if you just stay home. I know exactly where I'm at. I'm home because I didn't leave. Let's talk about pessimism and despair and again, dead things and living things and the difference between dead things and living things and Carthage and how it has a very lifelike quality to it, but then it also has a very living dead quality to it when we look at it in history. Carthage has an air in history of standing and staring like a mummy, he says, so dried up and swathed and embalmed that no man knows when it is new or old. Also, too, let's talk about Christianity dying, the end of Christianity, the end of the church. You know, a curious thing with yesterday's episode, as I was writing the description or the post to the Ashley Mullet Show.com this morning, 
I found myself feeling rather cynical about the Gospel Coalition, as it's known, and Kalev, and what passes for popular Christian fare, mainstream Christian culture in the U.S., and what are the implicit assumptions. They are not the kinds of witty, intelligent, wise, learned, eloquent, incisive observations we see in someone like Chesterton here. No. There's a superficiality. There's a therapeutic bend. There's a self-absorption. I mean, this is the trouble with a lot of what passes for Christian music these days. And you can go back a few episodes to the treatment of contemporary Christian music, what passes for contemporary Christian music these days. That episode 415, published the 22nd of June. But one thing not mentioned at length, maybe alluded to more than even mentioned at all, was this trouble with contemporary Christian music that it makes much of self and it places self at the center. And there is a difference between talking about oneself in reference to God, in reference to the world, in reference to various groups like the family, the community, the neighborhood, the city, the corporation, the nation, and talking about oneself in relation to feelings, emotions, sentiments, desires, disappointments. There should be more to us than feelings. And this is not to say that feelings have no place. That's a false choice. As soon as you say there should be more to us than just feelings, someone else will come back and say, ah, yes, but we need feelings too. Oh, yes, but you have quite a lot of them already. So point taken, but you're like a man with a 10,000 square foot mansion saying you need space. Talking to a guy who (laughs) has a 500 square foot studio he rents out. What is the ratio of learning about things outside yourself, about things outside of your own mind, your own feelings. If you watch some of the the man-on-the-street type videos online where journalists or anchors or commentators will go out, let's say, to a beach, they're talking with typically beautiful people, if they can help it, let's be honest, if it's going to be on video, if it's just audio, well, whatever. But if it's beautiful people and they're on video, well, then you can take a still of the most beautiful people and have that be your featured image. And people are more likely to click on the video and open it up when they see some beautiful woman in her swimsuit on rollerblades standing there talking with you. Whatever the title is, they're curious now and they want to hear what she has to say. But watch some of these man-on-the-street videos in which people in cities and in public places of recreation like beaches or amusement parks or county fairs are asked basic questions that a citizen should know the answers to about their own country, much less other countries, but your own country. You should know who the President of the United States of America is and the Vice President and the Speaker of the House 
and the Senate Majority Leader, and you should be able to name at least some of the Supreme Court justices. One of the funniest things in the wake of last week's Supreme Court ruling was a post at Not the Bee highlighting Count Dankula, who is a comedian, a troll. He likes to prank people. But he changed his Twitter name to Justice Dankula. And then he replied to Joe Biden's Twitter account, where Joe Biden was criticizing publicly the Supreme Court for having overturned Roe v. Wade. And Justice Dankula, who is, by the way, if it needs to be said, not a Supreme Court justice. He's a British internet troll and comedian and prankster. Replied to Joe Biden, we were very careful in our decision. (laughs) And hundreds of people replied to so-called Justice Dankula to argue the point. How could you? How could you do this? Thereby betraying, thereby revealing their own utter ignorance as to who is and is not on the Supreme Court of the United States. But that is to say, what these people do know is their feelings. They do know where they like to eat. They do know what music they like to listen to, what movies and TV shows they like to watch. They do know which beaches they like to go rollerblading at. They do know what they feel. And so they're led around by their feelings. They're easily manipulated. But there's a tragic side to those kinds of videos. There's a sadness, speaking of feelings, there's a sadness that I feel. And I don't say that to be condescending or to suggest that that could never be me if you put a microphone in my face and turn the cameras on randomly while I was out in public and asked me some important question, that that couldn't be me giving an ignorant answer. But it is to say, it does not bode well for us. <laughs> so people, that we are as ignorant of so many things compared with our heightened awareness of our feelings. And even where this podcast is concerned, It would be a tragedy if every time you tune in to me, you are getting my feelings and nothing more. Now, someone could say, well, yes, but you do get kind of upset sometimes. Again, what I'm not suggesting clearly, what I don't believe clearly, is that we should be unemotional, but rather that our emotion should accompany truth. And it should be informed by truth. And why is it, as we've talked about also on this podcast, why is it that people get very upset when they think they've been wronged? Well, because they think that an injustice has been done. And then as soon as you explain to them how this is all a misunderstanding, if you can persuade them that this is in fact a misunderstanding, there are important details that were left out or that were misreported or all of the above, they stop feeling upset. But see, this is the danger in so much of what presents itself as reporting and journalism in our day is that we have ignorant, manipulative people who do not want us to know the truth. They want us to feel feelings which cause us to do things which, in all too many cases, resemble very much 
slipping a certain drug into a young woman's drink at the bar or at the restaurant. That is to say, we are given mind-altering impressions of events and persons and ideas designed to remove our soul's ability to make wise choices. We are supposed to feel a certain way and be impaired so that essentially we can be taken advantage of as a people. And yes, when you realize that that is the game, it's appropriate to be angry at the injustice of it. But here's the thing I don't want. As Chesterton says, pessimism is not in being tired of evil, but in being tired of good. And I hear this pessimism when I talk with people who know better. I hear this pessimism and it is not healthy. It is not wise. It is not necessary. And it will not get a blessing. When you grow tired of good because you don't want to be disappointed again or because you've grown lazy and self-indulgent because you're proud and haughty, you are bound for destruction and you should repent. And the good news, the gospel, is that you can repent by God's grace. You can turn away from that wicked way of relating. The man who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. But when we get pessimistic and we get tired of good, we grow weary in doing good. We do not reap a harvest, except we reap a harvest of corruption. The simplest truth about man is that he is a very strange being, Chesterton writes in The Everlasting Man, almost in the sense of being a stranger on the earth. In all sobriety, he has much more of the external appearance of one bringing alien habits from another land than of a mere growth on this one. He cannot sleep in his own skin. He cannot trust his own instincts. He is at once a creator moving miraculous hands and fingers and a kind of cripple. He is wrapped in artificial bandages called clothes. He is propped on artificial crutches called furniture. His mind has the same doubtful liberties and the same wild limitations. Alone among the animals, he is shaken with a beautiful madness called laughter, as if he had caught sight of some secret in the very shape of the universe hidden from the universe itself. Alone among the animals, he feels the need of averting his thought from the root realities of his own bodily being, of hiding them as in the presence of some higher possibility which creates the mystery of shame. One of the signs of judgment in the scriptures is when a people does not know how to blush. We don't have the good sense to blush or to be embarrassed. And you notice this is a feature very often, we laugh at people who do blush, as if the only thing we have to be ashamed of is shame itself. I've been reading this other book as I drive back and forth to work. I'm not enjoying it, but I am trying to get through it since I started it. The Other Side of Church. And a lot is said about shame, and come to think of it, a lot of popular Christian fare of the self-help variety has to do with trying to artificially remove shame from our lexicon, remove shame from our emotional state. And yet, what if we should be ashamed? And what if, rather than just reminding us that we have a good Savior, and there's grace, grace, grace that is greater than all our sin, what if repentance is also very important? 
and a turning away from sin is very important. And that's actually the missing ingredient, not being reminded of the goodness of our Savior, but being taught to obey all that Christ commanded has been missing. All scripture being breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work, is missing. And instead of being equipped for every good work, we associate our feelings with piety or the lack thereof. How do you know a pious man? Well, because of the way that I feel around him. Kind of like, how do you know that you're in love? Well, because of the way that I feel around this person. What if your feelings are not informed by truth, though? What then? I intend to do a study soon. I don't know when, but I'm looking for some good books, some good resources to research further. Pietism and how pietism has shaped and influenced and molded our expression of Christian faith and practice, more to the point, in America. And my suspicion is that the reason we don't have more men like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, very thoughtful, very intentional, the reason why they seem so extraordinary is because we have set the bar very low on purpose because of some faulty notions of what passes for godliness. What does the Lord require of you? But to see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. That's all. Well, yeah, but... you need to speak and hear and think rightly, not just be annihilated, not just be like Carthage in the way that Chesterton describes Carthage, standing and staring like mummies, so dried up and swathed and embalmed that no man knows when they are new or old. Jesus tells us to beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says that outwardly they are beautiful, but inside, They're full of dead men's bones. And that's the trouble with making too much of Chesterton and Lewis and living on quotes of men who've been dead a long time, longer than we've been alive. It runs the risk of doing what the Inca did, where they would have these festivities in which their mummified emperors from bygone eras would be taken out of storage, carried around, through the town square, celebrated, fed, worshipped, as if they were alive. And all the while, the farce is that these men are dead, and you need a living leader now. Uh, See, this is my trouble as well, I'll admit, with something I've heard very often in the Reformed camp, something that I have some sympathy for, but I think it's taken to excess, namely that We should like to read men who have been dead a long time because we know how they ended up. We know that they didn't end in scandal. They didn't end up in ruin. We know that they were faithful until the last. Well, the curious thing about that is the problem of where are future generations going to find the men who finished well. We don't support those who might be our generation's Chesterton or Lewis, we won't rally around them until they're gone, until they're dead. Where does that idea come from? And also, is it fair to turn the question around on the people who say those sorts of things and ask, 
Does that mean I don't have to listen to you until you're dead? Until you're gone? Of course not. Imagine a scenario in which we refused to affirm or patronize or celebrate anyone who made any fresh work of art or music or literature, any new invention, until they were gone. Pessimism, I think, is what you call that. And as Chesterton says, pessimism is not in being tired of evil, but in being tired of good. Despair does not lie in being weary of suffering, but in being weary of joy. It is when, for some reason or other, the good things in a society no longer work that the society begins to decline. When its food does not feed, when its cures do not cure, when its blessings refuse to bless, we might almost say that in a society without such good things, we should hardly have any test by which to register a decline. And that is so true. That is so true. And it's galling because people who have grown weary of good, who despair of joy and are tired of it, won't listen when you tell them. This can be reversed. Here, look, they don't want it to be reversed. That's their wickedness. That's their folly. The food doesn't feed? Yeah. The cures don't cure? That's all right. C'est la vie. Christianity is about eternal life. And yet it's a curious thing that so many fixate on eternal life as if that is an escape from the responsibility to be alive right now. Yes, consider eternity. But eternity includes right this moment. And are you alive right now? Are you living right now in light of eternity? Are you cultivating and investing and stewarding your soul? Or are you angry, discontented, and bitter that you don't have what you want? And so you're pouting and you're refusing to eat your vegetables and you're refusing to participate until you get what you want. Or if you don't ever get what you want, well, then no one else can either. It's interesting that The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton is a response to The Outline of History by H.G. Wells. I had seen the title. I was loosely familiar with this being a work of Chesterton's, but I only learned recently from my friend Joseph Crampton that Chesterton here, in this book specifically, is writing a refutation of H.G. Wells' The Outline of History. And actually, I happen to have a very early copy of The Outline of History on my shelf, which we found at a used bookstore in Colorado Springs back in November, Lauren and I did, on our way to celebrate our wedding anniversary in the mountains. Whether it's a first edition or not, I don't remember. It might be, but it's early. It's an early edition. It's old, as in a century old. But it's interesting because H.G. Wells is this celebrated science fiction author and evolutionist. And he writes The Time Machine. And Chesterton points out a great observation with regards to the compare and contrast between the time machine and the outline of history, where when the professor, who is the central character in the fiction, which Chesterton makes a very funny point, 
Wells is much better at writing fiction than he is nonfiction because his nonfiction is actually fiction, but it doesn't have the self-awareness or the honesty to present itself as a fiction. The professor, as he's traveling forward very quickly into the future in his time machine, sees trees growing up very fast and thinks nothing of it, except, of course, if you were traveling forward through future very fast, you would see trees growing very fast instead of imperceptibly slow the way that we perceive them, experiencing time normally. But he makes this point about how evolutionary explanations for where we come from rely on making implausible, impossible things happen very slowly so as to make them seem plausible. If we just add enough time and enough random chance, we don't have to explain how these things happened. We can just assert that they did happen. But apparently, as Chesterton points out, H.G. Wells has no trouble with imagining these things happening very quickly instead of very slow. So long as the mechanism for these things happening very quickly is some scientific contraption, like a time machine made by men. And isn't that ironic? If God is the one making these things happen very quickly, however, well then, that's far-fetched. It's only far-fetched because you're at war with the idea of God and you hate and resent God, not because the idea is inherently far-fetched. Clearly, you disagree with yourself in the way that you write your fiction versus how you write your nonfiction. But it's things like this that make Chesterton, men like Chesterton, not just authors we should read and familiarize ourselves with, but also the kinds of men we ought to hope we will have more of, because we need more men who are courageous, insightful, wise, witty, and yes, confrontational. We do not need more men for whom it would be said they have no antagonists. Even to hear that Chesterton and H.G. Wells were at odds and that H.G. Wells was an antagonist to G.K. Chesterton would bother many Christians today here in America because they don't believe that conflict is warranted except when you are telling someone who is confronting evil to pipe down, like David's brothers told David to go home when he started asking who was going to go and fight Goliath, the Philistine champion. That is what a lot of our establishment American church types are like, like David's brothers. Go home. Picking your battles implies that sometimes battles are necessary and should be fought. But if we can't tell the difference between contending for the faith and someone who is contentious, we just avoid anyone who contends as if there is no difference that may speak to a preoccupation with our feelings and, more to the point, comfort, self-indulgence. A dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it, as Chesterton says. Only a living thing can go against the stream. Are we alive? Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and 
perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And to that, too many in our day love and admire brilliant men who have been dead a long time, like Chesterton and Lewis, so long as they can't touch us now, unless we want to be persuaded by them, when we want to be persuaded by them. They cannot confront us now. They cannot rebuke us now, unless we want them to. We prefer to read men who have been dead a long time because we can tune them out. It's a very similar mechanic to how we, many of us, are addicted to looking at our phones because we are in control of when and how we interact with people so long as the phone is in our hands. I can ignore this call. I can respond to that text if I want to or not. I can check out so-and-so's profile and comment on their posts whenever I feel like it. I can watch so-and-so's video or listen to their podcast whenever I please. And the question ought to be asked of us, do we think more highly of ourselves than we ought? And is that part of the reason why we would prefer that great men like Chesterton and Lewis exist in memory, but not in the moment? We've grown weary of doing good, methinks. We are pessimists, as Chesterton would define a pessimist. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the shushing, if you want to know the truth, of those who would celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. They are the status quo. They're not just defending the status quo. They are the status quo. Their funding comes from the status quo. Their livelihood depends on the status quo. At what point do comparisons to Balaam become apt? We keep it superficial. And whether you're talking about a few big donors, or you're talking about connections and networking, or you're talking about the democratization of American Christianity, as Nathan O'Hatch chronicles, at some point, comparisons to Balaam become necessary. Or we ought to ask the question of whether we are being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us, whether we are taking seriously the question of what does it profit a man that he would gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does that mean? What does that entail? And how do we relate to men when they might make us blush because their example embarrasses us by contrast because they do the right thing, they say what is true, they don't flatter, but it makes us look bad. Either because directly we're the ones being confronted or indirectly we also should have said those things. We also should have done those things and we didn't have the courage to. And now whatever happens to the one who was bolder than we are We'll just watch and see. Say la vie. Que sera, sera. There are two ways of getting home, and one of them is to stay there. But that is called hubris. That is called presumptuous. If someone is not marked by a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind, or power, and love, and self-control, we get jealous. We envy them because we operate from a spirit of fear. And what do we do? Do we encourage them? Do we follow their example, or do we prefer the book of Judges, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes? If there is one fact we really can prove from the history that we really do know, it is that despotism can be a development 
often a late development, and very often indeed the end of societies that have been highly democratic. A despotism may almost be defined as a tired democracy. As fatigue falls on a community, the citizens are less inclined for that eternal vigilance which has truly been called the price of liberty, and they prefer to arm only one single sentinel to watch the city while they sleep indeed. You know, the curious thing with regards to this whole question of stewardship, stewarding our souls, and not being the bikini-clad interviewee who knows nothing except that it's a sunny day, we do well to consider what has the Lord entrusted to us in our sphere. Do we understand what Paul is really getting at when he writes to the church at Thessalonica, that we should aspire to live quiet lives, working with our hands, minding our own affairs, being dependent on no one. We get that twisted so easily if we are dead things that go with the flow, not living things that can go against it. And I think we imagine whatever someone would take from us or offer to do for us, well, I mean, I can depend on them for that, right? I should, right? I mean, I'm supposed to mind my own business. Clearly, this is not my business since this guy offered to make the decision for me or to prevent me from being able to make this decision for myself or to do what I think is best or to control myself in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. I mean, wait, what? What did I just say? Be dependent on no one. Is that? Surely not. Surely Paul doesn't mean be dependent on no one. Minding my own business. Well, what is my business? I don't know what my business is. Well, I'll tell you this much. Your business is more than just knowing your feelings or being an expert on the feelings of those around you. We are a tired democracy. Or I should say, half of us believe that we should still be a society ruled by law in which men exercise self-control and not everything which they might make a mess of potentially with their freedom should be taken from them. That is despotism. That is tyranny. That is infantilizing the American male. You think patriarchy is bad? No. Patriarchy would be a godsend compared to the oppression which has come to mark our time. Our tired democracy where the community votes on what you're permitted to do. You only have freedom if you are expressly permitted to do a thing, but you always have to ask permission for everything, for anything, to breathe in, to breathe out, to blink, but for God to tell you to do or to not do. That's oppression. For a father, for a husband, for a man to manage his own household well, which he has to, he has to. If Consider this, if you will. Qualifications for overseers and deacons. I was just recently talking with a gentleman by the name of Joshua Chavez about the qualifications for overseers and deacons are not that a man has already operated at a very high level telling everyone in the town what to do and how to do it. No, the qualification for an overseer and a deacon, according to the Apostle Paul in the scriptures, is that he's the husband of one wife able to manage his own household well. Is he able to manage his own household well? You work up from that. He who has been faithful with a little will be faithful with much. And yet, 
what we find, again, with men like Jordan Hall, is the inverse. They are assumed to be faithful stewards of their homes by some who lack discernment. That's why they follow discernment ministry bloggers like they do, because they personally lack discernment. And I mean that in all the ways that it could be meant and taken. But what will we say? That men should not be able to manage their own households unless they are overseers and deacons already? Well, then how do they become qualified? You see, the implication when we become a tired democracy and lazy and we entrust all of these things to as few as possible, all of the thinking and we will do the feeling. They will do the thinking and we will do the feeling. The trouble is we guarantee that we will not have qualified leaders in our generation. And again, that's a very pessimistic view, which I agree with Chesterton. is not so much about being tired of evil. Those who are tired of evil are stirred to action. They are like David, asking who is going to fight this uncircumcised dog? Who is going to fight Goliath? Men who are tired of evil are like David. Men who are tired of good are like David's brothers who tell him to go home and to keep quiet because he's embarrassing them. I would recommend highly checking out G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man. It makes me also want to read the outline of history, probably very slowly, because it's four volumes. And I'm reading a lot of other things right now. So I can only read so many things at the same time. But you should check out The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. It's a great read. I give it five stars. That's all the time I've got, though, for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.